Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to see those of you back who've made it back. And if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them this morning to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 will be in verses 15 all the way to 26. Matthew 27, starting in verse 15, going to verse 26, as we continue the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Jesus' trial before Pilate. Matthew 27, 15 through 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the, uh, to the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For they, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word that has been preserved and handed down to us. Thank You that You have not left us without direction. Thank You that You haven't left us without a Gospel, without good news. Thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, down to earth to be born as a man, to live and to die in our place. And I pray, Lord, that You would make that clear to all of us here this morning. That for anyone to be made right before You, we must have a substitute. Lord, I pray that You would help us to understand Your Word and that You would give it clarity. And we pray, God, too, for all of the things that are going on in the world today, for those that are suffering in Ukraine, for our own nation and the direction it's going. We pray, Lord, that Your will would be done, that You would comfort those who mourn, that You would strengthen Your church, and that You would get glory for Your name. We do not know what the future holds, but Lord, we know that You are in command of it all, that nothing will surprise You. And we take great comfort in trusting 
you and entrusting ourselves to you. And so it's to you we look and in you we hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week I had mentioned that we wouldn't bring up Pilate again, but that wasn't right, was it? Because uh, here he is. And in this passage, it seems the spotlight is right on him and it's unavoidable. Uh, I'm sure the church is forgiving enough to uh, be gracious with that mistake of mine. But uh, we're going to look at Pilate again. And since so many of you were absent, it bears at least briefly repeating who the man is. Pilate was the governor of Judea who was appointed by and directly answerable to the Roman emperor who at the time was Emperor Tiberius. Uh, Pilate was a ruthless and an expedient ruler who hated the Jewish people and would go to great lengths to make their lives miserable. He would rob them and he would disrupt them and he would provoke them and he would kill them at the slightest hint of resistance or uprising. So he hated these people he was governing. And history tells us that shortly before the crucifixion, shortly before this trial we just read about, Pilate was rebuked and he was warned by the emperor himself to stop aggravating the situation in Judea. So when the scene opens up on the trial of Christ, Pilate's already in hot water. Tensions are already high and the threat of escalation is very present. It's the Passover feast. Uh, Josephus tells us, the historian Josephus tells us, at this time in Jerusalem the population could swell to almost a million people. A million zealous, uh, fervent worshipers would come to the temple for this feast. And whenever that happened, you gather a million people together, you have the opportunity for trouble. That's what Pilate finds himself in. A volatile situation. And uh, because it's the Passover... And fitting for the occasion, Pilate decides he will honor a Jewish custom. And that custom is, every Passover, he would release a criminal condemned to death. He would show clemency, give pardon to a criminal. This provided just the opportunity that Pilate needed. So he's got a plot. Pilate has a plan. He knows that it's only for envy's sake that the Jews have brought Jesus to him. He knows that the only reason they want Jesus out of the picture is because Jesus is taking glory away from the Sanhedrin, away from the religious leaders, and Jesus is exposing how hypocritical they are. Pilate knows that's why Jesus is here. Pilate probably enjoys watching it happen to them. But not only that, he knows how the crowds had honored Christ and sung of his, of his entry into Jerusalem just a week earlier. This is not speculation. It's, it's inconceivable to think that Pilate, with all of his spies and informants throughout the city, would be unaware of what was happening. He is, he is up to date on the situation. And so with this opportunity before him, this Roman governor would present the people with what he believed a simple choice. The harmless Jesus who had taught his followers to love their enemies and whom they hailed as a king, or Barabbas, a violent and notorious prisoner. Certainly the leaders couldn't bring themselves to ask for the vilest criminal of the day to be released. Pilate knows they're going to choose the innocent man. How could they not free the one who is guiltless over the one they know to be guilty? So Pilate is confident. 
He puts before the crowd the noble Jesus and the vulgar Barabbas. Pilate knows what's going to happen. The crowd looks on. The Sanhedrin has been bested by him. Pilate has played the game and he thinks he's won. He's trapped them. He's about to execute his cunning plan to release Jesus and humiliate them when all of a sudden he's interrupted by a message from his wife. She's had a dream about Jesus. And whatever the dream was, we don't know, but the result is clear. She warns Pilate, do not have anything to do with this righteous man. You know, in the Greek Orthodox Church, in, in the Coptic Church in Egypt, uh, they believe Pilate's wife, Claudia Procla, is to be revered as a, as a saint. And the reason she's honored is because she intervened on Jesus' behalf. And you could read the passage that way. She was troubled by a dream, maybe of Jesus' innocence, maybe of His holy righteousness, but she had, uh, she had a nightmare. And so she sent a message telling her husband, liberate Jesus and set Him free. You could read it that way. But what she actually tells Pilate, her husband, is not to set Jesus free. She tells Pilate, have nothing to do with Him. Which, if you've been paying attention in the story, is exactly what Pilate wants to do anyway. It's what he's been trying to do the entire time. He, uh, there, there's nothing more that Pilate wants than to have nothing more to do with this man. So far, he's sent him to Herod. He has uh, argued with the priests. He's had Jesus beaten. He's tried to get out of the dilemma any way that he can. And even though there may be something of a warning in his wife's message, it certainly is not a righteous rebuke to try to set Jesus free. Pilate's intentions all along were to have nothing to do with Jesus. That's exactly what he wants. He wants to avoid his responsibility as a judge. He wants to be free of the case. He wants to have nothing more to do with it, not because it isn't difficult. It's not a difficult case. It's an obvious case. The reason Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with it is because the cost of doing what is right is too high. He doesn't want to do what's wrong, but in this instance that Pilate finds himself in, justice would be much too costly. And so he wants to avoid the situation. His wife's intervention confirms this to him. He must be free, whatever he does, of the burden and the influence of this man, Jesus. Now, Pilate should have been brave. Pilate should have had the courage to do what was right and to honor his authority as a judge, but he, he listens to his wife as a, as a kind of Gentile Adam, and hearing his wife and hearing the rage of the crowd, he condemns righteousness himself to death on a tree. While he's dealing with the message that he receives, the elders and the chief priests get to work. Pilate presented them a choice, but there's only one answer they'll accept. They begin to get the crowd fired up. They're, they're giving their speeches. They're praising Barabbas. They're accusing Christ. They, they celebrate, no doubt, Barabbas and his anti-Roman sentiments. They lie about the Lord to try to turn the crowd against Him. All, all of it in an effort to inspire the people to join them in their condemnation of Jesus the King. They've come this far. They're not dare going to let Jesus' obvious innocence, His blamelessness, His guiltlessness get in their way. And the elders and the priests succeed. 
The crowd turns against Jesus. This is the crowd that just days ago was singing Hosanna in the highest and throwing palm boughs down before Him as the Lord rode in Jerusalem. Now they turn against Him wholeheartedly. They turn against Him completely. He didn't give them what they had hoped for. They had hoped for an end to the Roman occupation. They had hoped for freedom from their oppression. Freedom from the imposed worship of Tiberius. Freedom from the evil of Rome. And when they didn't get it from Jesus, they would turn to the murderous Barabbas instead. They would turn to the failed insurrectionist. At least he would fight against Rome. And so when Pilate returns from his private council and he asks the question again, the crowd surprises him. They've been convinced by their leaders and convinced entirely. And here begins one of the most dramatic scenes in all of Scripture. Pilate, he steps out onto the steps before the crowd. Jesus is on one hand. Barabbas is on the other. He's about to give his judgment. One of these men before him is going to die and the other one is going to be released. And so he raises his voice to the crowd. Who would you have me release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is the Messiah? Which of the two do you want me to release? And the crowd answers with one voice. Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! Pilate's taken back. He's surprised. His plan faltered. And what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? His desperation is obvious. He has an option. He can still release the innocent. Jesus does not need to be pardoned because Jesus has not done anything wrong. Pilate should never have played this game, but he did and he lost. His answer should have been, I will release him immediately because he is only before me because of the envy of the Jews. He has been examined repeatedly and found innocent. He's done nothing deserving of death. He hasn't even done anything wrong. I mean, how many times in the Gospels does Pilate declare Jesus innocent? Four times just in this passage we just read. But he won't render a verdict. He is a coward. He's trying to evade his responsibility. He thinks he's being clever. He thinks he's outsmarting the crowd. He's rudely awakened. And so the crowd hears this question. What should happen to Jesus? Banishment? Flogging? Maybe give him a night in the stocks? Now the crowd shouts back, Crucify him! They begin to chant, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate is in disbelief. But why? What evil has He done? Why are you so intent to murder this innocent man? But they don't even answer. The only thing they do is shout all the louder and raise their voices all the more. Crucify! 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 They've become violent. They're, they're out for blood. They're threatening. And they are victorious. The Sanhedrin has triumphed and their voices prevailed. They prevailed over justice. Their voices prevailed over the innocent. They have prevailed over Pilate. They have prevailed over Christ. 
And so the governor, a riot on his hands, he acts. But he doesn't act with integrity. He acts with expediency. And he washes his hands before the crowd because Pilate is done with the affair and is going to have nothing more to do with this innocent man. Even though he was commissioned by even God for the upholding of righteousness, that was his job. As a judge, he was obligated to release the innocent and dispense justice. He knowingly hands over an innocent man to be killed. And he does it with the same words that the Sanhedrin used to dismiss Judas. He says, what is this to me? See to it yourselves. The crowd calls down curses on themselves and on their children. Let his blood be on us and on our offspring. By their rejecting of Christ, they curse themselves. They even curse their own children. And then all together, Pilate and the crowd, they don't just do what is evil. They, they don't just betray justice. According to Proverbs 17.15, they do one of the worst things that can be done. They become themselves an abomination before God. It's the strongest word of condemnation that can be given. Proverbs 17.15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both alike are an abomination before God. God cares about justice. This is not justice. This is a miscarriage of justice. This is a disgusting thing that's happening. The whole event is a mockery of everything that is right. And the whole thing, there's one person that seems strangely absent. He only comes up indirectly. And that's Jesus, the defendant. And if you wonder why he's not the focus in this passage, or at least he doesn't seem to be, it's because in the whole ordeal, he doesn't say a word. He's quiet. He is silent before his oppressors. The, the debate in this passage, it's over what should be done with him. His fate is, is hanging in the balance here. And though he doesn't speak a word, and though the, the spotlight really isn't on him, don't think for a moment that he is not the focus around which this whole trial revolves. Because if there is one question that captures what's happening here, if there's one question that gets to the, the, the core of this trial, it's this. What shall be done with Jesus who is the Christ? What shall be done with Him? Have you ever wrestled with it yourself, that question? What will you do with Jesus who is the Christ? Well, there are a few answers in this passage. There are a few descriptions of how people answer. And I want you to ask yourself, which one are you? Which camp do you fall into? Because, believe me, you, you fit in this story somewhere. First, there's Pilate. Really the one the spotlight is on in this passage. He's the one making the decision. He's the one who knows what's going on. I mean, you think about all the Pilate knows and all the Pilate believes about Jesus. He knows a lot. In fact, he knows a great deal. There are many like him today. 
They join Pilate in believing that Jesus is innocent. That is, they'll, they'll say Jesus was a good man. He didn't deserve what happened to him. He, he taught good and noble principles. He wasn't a rebel. He was a good teacher. They may even go so far as to affirm as he is a righteous man. Say things like, there was never someone so great as Jesus. Greatest man that's ever lived. There's an admiration and a reverence for Jesus and even a kind of fear. Right? Pilate's afraid of him. Pilate is amazed by him. Pilate is in awe of Jesus in this passage. Many agree. Many people admire Jesus. They say things like, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is this or Jesus is that. He has an admirable character. They, they, they say that they think very highly of Jesus. They never say anything bad about Him. They call Him Lord. And yet will here depart from Me, I never knew you. And the reason why they hear it is not because they don't believe. Right? Not quite. They believe Him. At least they believe what Jesus says. His words are wonderful. And maybe people like this can even quote Scripture because they think His words are authoritative. They know them. They know their Bibles. They're like Pilate who believed what Jesus said. You read the story, Pilate does believe everything Jesus says. Pilate never questions a word. He never questions an answer he received. And there are people who invest a certain authority in the Word of Christ and in the Bible because it holds an important spot in their life. So they believe it. Uh, they might even believe who He is. That He is King or even the Son of God. Pilate seems to have thought so. He refused to change the charge against Jesus. He said He was King of the Jews. They came to Him and said, no, no, change it to say, He said He was King of the Jews. Pilate says, I have written what I have written. And when he heard the accusation that Jesus claimed, not in here but in John, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, Pilate hears that. Pilate trembles and is very much afraid. It's hard to imagine the judge afraid of the naked prisoner there before him in chains unless he suspected that the one before him might even be the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Kings? How do you know that your faith is not like Pilate's, which was no faith at all? You see, even though Pilate knew all of these things, and even though Pilate had so much truth, he had so much light shine in on him in the final hours of Jesus' life, and even though he assented to it, and he seemed to accept it, and did everything short of confessing, I believe it, there is no indication from Scripture that Pilate ever became a Christian. You wonder why? It's because even though he believed all of these things, when push came to shove, and when Pilate was put into a difficult situation where he had to decide, do I, do I side with Jesus or do I side with the forces conspiring against him? Right? Do I join him and risk losing my position and risk a lot of trouble here in Judah? If I, if I side with him, that will happen? Or do I have nothing more to do with him for security's sake and save my hide? Releasing Jesus would have caused a riot. Releasing Jesus would have cost him his job. 
Releasing Jesus would have cost him his prestige. Got him into a lot of trouble with the emperor. There was a lot on the line to make this decision. And even though he believed everything about the Lord, he was not willing to associate with Jesus when it was so costly. The cost, he, he, he counted the cost and it was too high. And do you think that with Jesus? Do you think that about Him? You believe all of the right things, but when the cost of being a Christian starts to inflate, and you look around and you say, well, if I follow Christ, it's, I'm, looking, I'm looking in the future and following Jesus is not going to be pleasant. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be costly. And you see that, you're not going to risk the association. Right? You're, you're unwilling. You believe it. You've counted the cost. And you've found it much higher than you're willing to pay. You will not part with this sin or that sin. You won't risk the ire of the, of the world or friends or the society around you. You're exactly the kind of person Jesus warns when He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Listen, ho holding on to your life in this world is like trying to hold water in your hand. The more tightly you squeeze onto it, the less you'll have. If you want life and life in abundance, you follow Christ and hold your life loosely. Because that's where the line is drawn. You believe a lot about Jesus. You admire Jesus. You think very highly of Jesus. You're partial to the church. You even believe in God and you believe that you're going to see Him one day. Maybe you believe in a heaven and believe in a hell, but this is the line, Pilate's line. And if you cross that, it will cost you. You'll lose your life here. Lose it. Gone. In various ways. And even though you would gain your life for eternity, you're unwilling. You would rather hold on to everything you have and stay where you are and live comfortable with the world and never run into any difficulty, never have any cost, and lose your life forever. Pilate learned that lesson. At least he's learned it by now. Because eternity is a very long time to be wrong. Eternity is a long time to pay for 70 years. Don't make the same mistake that he did. Don't hear about Jesus and give your assent to Him, but then think that you can somehow escape all responsibility by washing your hands and declaring yourself innocent. Well, he may have been innocent before Rome, and he may have been innocent before the crowd, but he was not innocent before God. You cannot wash your hands and walk away. You must decide. What will you do with Christ? That was a question asked to the crowd. A crowd that was fickle and unsettled. It was like a leaf tossed to and fro on the wind. One day they are singing Jesus' praise. The next day they're calling for His crucifixion. One day they're for Him. The next day they're against Him. One day they're praising Him. One day they're asking for His death. It's, it's like those who were alive in Elijah's day. Uh, they went on limping between two opinions, never making up their mind. And, and He calls them, make up your minds once and for all. If you're going to worship anything else, worship it. But if Jesus is God, follow Him. 
And they couldn't decide. They, they couldn't make up their minds. They went back and forth. One day for the Lord, the next day, whatever other God was available. And maybe that sounds familiar. On Sundays, you hear the Word preached and you enjoy the fellowship of believers. You count yourself blessed. But on Monday, it's right back to the world. And nothing's changed. It's like Sunday never even happened. It's like Jesus doesn't even exist. Sin reigns unopposed, unrepented of, and the Lord is thrown aside or trampled underfoot. There's no loyalty. There's no determination to follow Jesus come what may. It's the opposite. Whatever comes is going to determine how far you follow. Listen, there was more at work in this crowd than just indecision. They didn't just not make up their mind. They turned against Jesus fiercely. And the reason they turned so violently against Him was because He did not give them what they wanted. They were praising Him earlier in the week only because they were determined, they were sure, they were convinced that Jesus was going to lead them to earthly freedom, not heavenly glory. They wanted political autonomy. They wanted Jesus to defeat their enemies. They wanted immediate freedom, not the weak shall inherit, the meek shall inherit the earth. And when Jesus is there in front of the crowd, weak and in chains, defeated before their eyes, beaten and bloodied at the mercy of and humiliated by their enemy Rome, the people were disappointed. And not in a good way. They were disillusioned. They would not follow a king whose kingdom was not, it was not of this world. And the reason for their disappointment was not because Jesus let them down. They were disappointed because they never cared to worship Jesus in the first place. They had placed their own expectations on Him and had not taken His mission as their own. They worshipped Him only as long as they thought He would give them what they wanted and what they longed for. In this case, their idol was freedom from Rome. Their worship was, let us have a Jewish state. And when God in the flesh would not deliver, at least He would not deliver immediately, He was disowned. When He wouldn't give them what they craved, it became apparent that Jesus was not their God or their Messiah. Something else was. And Jesus was just a, a tool. He was just a ticket. And when they found out the tool wasn't useful, when they found out how oh, the ticket may have expired, they were done. Not only would He not deliver them from Rome, but now He stood in their way of achieving it. Right? Love your enemies, pay taxes, and do good to those who persecute you are not ways to break free from Roman oppression. He'll not lead us against Rome, they said, and His teaching stands in our way. So away with Him, they said, to the cross. There is a tremendous danger in viewing Christ as a means to an end. And if you fall into this trap, recognize that you've fallen in and do everything you can to get free from it. It leads to hatred of Christ because He stands in the way of you embracing whatever idol has your heart. You know, maybe you want to be in control of your destiny, which is what most people struggle with. It's most people's desire, especially in our day and age. I am who I am, and there is no other besides me, Isaiah says, is the, the cry of the age. Jesus says, no, 
This is the way. He stands in your way. And if He is not your God, if you're your God, you will come not only to reject Him, but to resent Him. Or your marriage. You want it desperately to be saved. So you come to Christ. But when the marriage doesn't turn around, you cast Him aside as a worthless instrument, as a tool that was not appropriate for the job and you go on looking for something else. Or you want to escape hell. Get into heaven. And this is, this is deceptive because it's never truly exposed until the moment it's too late. But you look at Jesus as, as the ticket to paradise. What do you do when you get to paradise? You throw the ticket away. But if you view Jesus merely as a, as a ticket out of hell or a ticket into heaven, you will be sorely disappointed. Or some come for acceptance. And when they find out that Jesus expects them to obey certain commands and say goodbye to certain sins and to begin to live a certain way, they're gone. Jesus stands in their way from preventing them from becoming exactly who and what they want to be. Jesus says, you will be like me. And I say, no. I'll go my own way. And listen, there are hundreds of wrong reasons to come to Christ. There are thousands of idols. I think it was Calvin speaking of, of, uh, of, of us said, our, our hearts are idol factories. And so if I didn't mention yours, don't worry. One is tempting you probably right now. Find it and cast it down. Because if that remains, and in these people, they follow for a little while, but there's no depth. There's no real genuine love for the Lord. And, and if you want to identify this in yourself, ask yourself the question, is Jesus just a means to an end? Is Jesus the only reason you, you're a Christian? You, you come to church, you love the Lord, you do these things. It's because Jesus is going to get something for you. He's a, a tool to take you from point A to point B. You, you can't love the gift and not the giver. That'll never do. That's not a saving faith. And no idolater will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You follow Christ for Christ. There's one other person in this story. There is. And his name is Barabbas. And we don't even know much about Barabbas except that he's uh, one of the few people who's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And those Gospels picture Barabbas uh, not as a, as a robber or a thief, right? Romans didn't crucify thieves. They crucified murderers and rebels and terrorists. And of the three men to be crucified that day, Barabbas was their chief. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He had killed people. He was an enemy of the state condemned to die with blood on his hands. And here he is. He's brought out of his cell early in the morning. And what does he see when they march him out on the steps? He sees Pilate and he sees Jesus and he sees the mob. And Pilate calls him forward and presents him to the crowd. Barabbas knows what's happening. It's Passover. One of them is going to be set free. 
And Pilate stands there on the steps of justice. On, on one side of him is Jesus, the Son of God. And on the other side is Barabbas, the remorseless murderer. And so much more is happening here than just Pilate playing games to save his own skin. Here you have the rightful prisoner. He is dangerous. He deserves to die. He deserves to be on death row. He has murdered people, Barabbas has. He is a rebel and a crook and a bad man. He deserves the chains and he deserves the cross. It's the cross that has been prepared for him along with two of his companions. Now on the other side you have Jesus, the righteous one who everyone involved knows is innocent. I mean, what's he done besides healed people and fed people and obeyed his father perfectly and cleansed lepers and given sight to the blind? He's told men to love their enemies. What has he done to deserve this? I just think of this scene. How can Jesus and Barabbas be there on the same platform? How can they even be compared to one another as if they were somehow on the same field? It's ridiculous. But here they are. The just and the unjust. Why? I'll tell you why. You know what Jesus is to Barabbas? He's not Barabbas's opposite. He is Barabbas's substitute. Is the Romans, they didn't just have a stockpile of crosses. Three crosses were prepared that day. The holes were already dug. Three, ready to go. Pilate didn't even try Jesus till that morning. Now, you, you have to understand this. The cross that Jesus is about to die upon had been prepared for Barabbas the rebel. Jesus is taking His place. And listen, there is only one person in this passage who walks free. The crowd calls down curses on themselves. Pilate aborts all justice. Jesus is condemned to die. Barabbas has his chains removed, his sentence erased, and he walks free. And I hope you see what's happening here. Because you and I, if you've put your trust in Christ, you're in this scene. Because you and I are just like the rebel, Barabbas. We were like the murderer. We were in chains. No remorse. Death row. We were bad men and bad women and bad people with crosses carved for us with our names on them. Rebels and enemies, the whole lot. Not before Rome but against God. And we stood there on the steps of justice with God on His throne. And we stood there guilty without a single word to give in our defense. But the crowd didn't speak up. God spoke up. And He looked at us, the rebels on one side, and Jesus, His own perfect Son, on the other. And He said, only one of you is going free. And my son, it's not going to be you. You're innocent. And you are blameless before me. But you know. This is why I sent you and this is why you came. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
And God had your chains unlocked. And you and I, murderers in heart, adulterers in heart, remorseless rebels. Jesus says anyone who is angry at their brother is a murderer in heart. Anyone who looks at a person lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. We all see idols in our lives that draw our attention away from Him. We all have rebelled against God. Not even caring. Imagine you, get, uh, you commit some crime and the police officer comes and he takes you and you tell him, yeah, but I don't care about your laws in this land or pay attention to them at all. And yet most of us live our lives that way regarding God. He may have given us laws to obey, but we don't care. He may have created us to live a certain way, called us to do a certain thing, but we have sinned and broken them all. And we are the ones who by putting our trust in Him walk free, totally justified, because Christ takes our place. Because Christ takes your place if you believe in Him. Now, I don't know whatever happened to Barabbas. I don't know if he realized what was happening when it happened. But I know what God was telling us. And I hope you see it too because Jesus was something for Barabbas whether he knew it or not. Jesus took his place and died his death. And if you want to be anyone in this story, if you want to be free, if you want to have your chains undone and walk away, don't be like Pilate and make the same mistake he did. Don't wash your hands and walk away and say, I'm done with this. And don't be like the crowd and gnash your teeth at him when you don't get what you want and life doesn't turn out the way you'd hoped. Don't let him be the means to your end. No, you stand where Barabbas stood and you see yourself as you are. Not a rebel against men but against God. Not a free person. Nobody in this room is free. Nobody in this room is, is, is not a slave to sin. Just try to go a whole day doing everything perfectly. And you'll find out really fast how strong and heavy the chains of sin are around your ankles and around your hands. No, you say, I am chained and rightly so. I am not a good person. I'm a bad person who is rightly condemned, angry and murderer in heart, adulterer in heart. I'm the unjust one. And you stand there knowing that your only hope is that Jesus takes your place and dies your death and carries your cross. And you look to Him for mercy. And you look to Him for forgiveness. And you look to God for pardon and walk free in Christ. It's the only way anyone is ever going to be set free. Not by being a better person. Not by trying harder. Certainly not by ignoring Jesus. But by confessing, Lord, have mercy on a sinner like me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would have mercy today. Lord, all of us were sinners and spent large portions of our lives with no remorse for what we've done. But Lord, You saved us 
You took our chains and our death and became our substitute. And Lord, You will do the same for anyone who comes to You and confesses their sin and confesses Your name. And so I pray if there is anybody here this morning who doesn't know You, who is not a Christian, or thought they were, but were a Christian no more than the crowd or Pilate were Christians. They were not at all. And I pray, Lord, that You would show them this if they have walked around under a false banner. But that, God, You would show them what they must do. Repent, turn from sin, and turn to Your Son and believe that Jesus Christ has died in their place and follow Him. Thank You, Lord, for Your great and immeasurable mercy that You would send Your only Son to die for us. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, don't let the sun go down tonight without making things right with Him. If there's anyone here this morning who who's never heard this message before, and you want to know more, before you leave this building, come and talk to me or talk to Thomas. Talk to whoever brought you here. But the last thing you ought to do is not talk to anybody. Talk to somebody about the state of your soul before Christ. Eternity really is hanging in the balance. Don't throw it away like it's meaningless.